Today, we are beginning our study of a new book of the Bible, the book of Jonah. It will take significantly less than 129 messages to get through this one. If you're looking at it in your Bible, you're thinking this is an incredibly small amount of space, but wait till you see how long it's gonna take me to get through it. You'll be astounded, absolutely. It's a short book, it's only four chapters long. It's found in the Old Testament of your Bibles and it tells the story of a prophet of God who lived around 800 years before Jesus came to the earth in the nation of Israel. And if you're trying to find it by flipping, you're probably not gonna find it. You just need to suck it up and go to the table of contents because it fills like three pages in your Bibles. So you're probably not gonna do it. But go ahead, go ahead, go for it. You've heard of him because in pop culture, Jonah is known for one thing and one thing only, being that dude who was swallowed by a whale and yet somehow survived. It's one of the many comforting stories we Christians tell our children before they go to bed at night. And then a giant creature came out of the ocean and swallowed him up. Sleep tight. Pop culture doesn't believe such a story could possibly be true, and that really shouldn't surprise us. What, what should surprise us, what should shock us, is the incredible number of believers within the church who don't believe that the book of Jonah is literal. In other words, they don't believe it's a historical book about things that actually happened. They believe it's some sort of metaphor, some sort of allegory, a, a Christian fairy tale, if you will, designed to teach and reveal certain truths, a fable. I'm not concerned when a non-believer doesn't take the book of Jonah literally. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, then there's no reason for you to take his word seriously. And if you're in that place, you shouldn't start your investigation into Jesus by looking at stories like Jonah. You should begin by looking into Jesus and his resurrection as we just did over the past five weeks. But when a believer, a Christian, doesn't believe the book of Jonah is literal and historical, it concerns me. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Should we not take the book of Jonah literally because it seems like something impossible? The claim of the book of Jonah is that this was a miraculous event authored by God himself. Therefore, when we begin dismissing miracles that are documented in the Bible, just because they seem impossible, we're revealing our failure to grasp what it means that God is God. He's God. Nothing is impossible for God. In philosophy, that's one of the defining characteristics of God. He's the ultimate supreme being who can do anything. That's what makes him God. If he's bound by the laws of nature which he created himself, then he wouldn't be God and he certainly wouldn't have had the power to create them in the first place. So logically, philosophically, if a God exists, then that God can act and there can therefore be acts of God. That's not a faith issue, it's a logic issue. That's what God can do, it's what makes him God. The difficulty of a miracle is not an issue for God. If we have an issue believing that, then we have some serious foundational faith problems that we need to work through because what we're saying is I can't believe that because it seems too difficult. And when Moses expressed that sort of sentiment to God, God responded facetiously by asking him, What's the deal, Moses? Are my arms too short? Can I not make this happen? It may be impossible with man, but nothing is impossible for God. That's what the Lord told Abraham as well. Nothing is impossible for God. So should we not take Jonah literally because 
If we do, then it opens us up to ridicule from non-believers. You know, maybe your non-believing friends will say, you, you really believe stuff like Jonah and the whale? This giant fish comes up and swallows him and he survives in there for three days and then gets puked out. Doesn't it damage the credibility of our faith if non-believers laugh at us for believing what they think is a fairy tale? Here's a crucial truth. It's never our job to make our faith credible, credible by altering what the Bible says so that it can meet with the approval of non-believers. Every church and every denomination in the world that's doing that right now is in incredible decline. Pay attention to this and go, go check it out. Every church denomination that has modified what the Bible says about marriage is in enormous decline. Presbyterian church around the world, in incredible decline. The church downtown Vancouver, you guys all know it, the historical church that's downtown that always has the banner, you know, open hearts, open minds, open doors. It's a beautiful historical building. They said, we're gonna have this great open inclusive policy. That's great. None of the people who wanted them to take that policy have ever actually shown up in their church. It's not like there's hundreds of people in their church now. The only thing that happens is that the faith loses its credibility. Because based on rational philosophy here, let me ask you this, if we claim that we're serving an eternal, unchanging God, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, not just because he says he is, but because he's perfect. So in other words, if God is perfect, he doesn't change because he doesn't need to change. He was perfect, there's no need to evolve, there's no need for him to change his positions. That's the God we're claiming to serve. So we cannot make that claim and simultaneously make the claim that what our faith teaches is changing because this eternal perfect God is taking his cues on how to improve himself from culture. We cannot make both claims at the same time. Either God is perfect and unchanging or he's simply a mirror image of the values of our culture. And if he's only a mirror image of the values of our culture, then clearly he's not a God, he's a fabrication of our own creation. But if there is a God who is eternal and unchanging, then guess what? Sometimes his values are not gonna line up with the values of people in the world because he's the eternal unchanging standard. So it's never our job to say, well, let's change what the Bible says so that more people who don't believe it in the first place will find it less offensive or more credible. And if you're not prepared to be mocked for your faith, if you're not prepared to be intellectually ridiculed for it, how could you ever make the claim that you're ready to die for Jesus? The foundation of Christianity is the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And here's what the Apostle Paul, wrote about the foundation of our faith in his first epistle to the Corinthian church. It's on your outlines. He said the message of the cross on which all of Christianity hangs is, underline the word, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul doesn't say the cross appears foolish to non-believers, therefore we should change our interpretation of it into something more symbolic and palatable to the culture. No, he says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If non-believers find the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus foolishness, we shouldn't be surprised that they would find the miraculous other accounts in the Bible foolish as well. And we should be prepared for that. If a believer doesn't take Jonah literally because it seems impossible, then their concept of God is too small. 
If a believer doesn't take Jonah literally because non-believers think it ridiculous, then their interpretation of the Bible is being driven by a fear of man rather than a fear of God. Hey everybody, sorry for the interruption. We had some minor technical difficulties recording this message, and so what's going to happen is the audio is going to get really bad for about 45 seconds. It's the audio from our video camera, and then after that, it's going to get significantly better. So please excuse any difficulty you have following for about the next 45 seconds, but it's going to get better after that. Let's get back to the message. The believer cannot simply call the things of the Bible allegorical because they seem impossible or difficult. There has to be a rock-solid reason to not take it literally. And in the case of Jonah, there is no reason to not take it literally. Firstly, we know that Jonah was a real person because he's mentioned by name in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. This is on your outlines as well. In 2 Kings 14.25, it says this, he, speaking of the Lord, restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath the Fed. The Bible tells us that in the days of Jeroboam II, who's a powerful king in southern Israel, the region known as Judah, his reign brought tremendous prosperity. Amos the prophet was on the scene. Up in northern Israel, Hosea the prophet was ministering as well. And according to 2 Kings, Jonah was on the scene at that same time too. 2 Kings identifies Jonah as an actual person who was a prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord, and we're even told who his father is and what his hometown was. You know, it was a very difficult thing to be a prophet in Israel. But perhaps no handicap was more difficult to overcome than not actually existing. We cannot imagine how difficult it was to proclaim the word of the Lord when you were only an allegorical human being. The, the lack of a physical body and the lack of a, a real voice was an incredible hindrance to have to overcome. I'm being facetious, obviously. So case solved, right? Well, unless, of course, you don't take second kings literally either. You see, it's not an accident that Jonah gets this shout out in one verse of 2 Kings. That's not an accident. The Lord wanted us to be forced to choose between taking Jonah literally or digging an even deeper hole for ourselves by having to dismiss the historicity of 2 Kings as well. Secondly, not only does Jonah get a shout out in 2 Kings, let me share with you the single biggest reason we should take Jonah literally. Because Jesus took it literally. Write this down. Jesus took the book of Jonah literally. That's a pretty good endorsement in my book. When pressed by religious leaders of the day to give them a sign to prove he was God, Jesus responded by saying, this is on your outlines, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Now let me ask you, was Jesus dead in the grave for three allegorical days and nights? Did Jesus die metaphorically? 
Did Jesus preach the gospel with real words to real people, or was it some sort of mystical rather than literal preaching? Jesus took the book of Jonah literally. Here's how the logic works. Jesus is God. Jesus taught that Jonah should be taken literally by using it to parallel his own death and resurrection. We believe that Jesus speaks truth. Therefore, we believe that the book of Jonah should be taken literally. Simply put, we are going with the stream of Bible interpretation that doesn't call Jesus a liar. That's the one we're going to go with. Now, it's very interesting to me that of all the books in the Bible, there are three that Satan seems to especially hate. There's a couple more, but I want to highlight three. And those three are Jonah, Daniel, and Genesis. Now, why do I say Satan hates those books? Because the credibility of those three books is constantly being attacked by critics and higher criticism faculties, even in seminaries, who keep telling us that we should not take these three books literally. And I find that interesting because Genesis 3.15 contains the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first mention in the Bible of the gospel. It records man's sin as the problem and gives the first promise of a savior that will be sent by God. Daniel contains some of the most vivid and specific prophecy and imagery of Jesus coming to reign on the earth as its king. And Jonah was used by Jesus to parallel the sign he would present to the world to authenticate his claim to be God. In other words, Genesis speaks of Jesus' first coming. Daniel speaks of Jesus' second coming. And Jonah speaks of the death and resurrection of Jesus. No wonder Satan is so determined to undermine the credibility of these three books. And no wonder we're constantly being told by critics we should not take them literally. Which is why it's also so interesting to me that Jesus went out of his way during his ministry to specifically reference these three books. And when he did so, he always spoke of them literally. You might remember he referred to Adam and Eve as the model for marriage. Do you remember that when he said, as it was from the beginning, a man shall leave his family and cleave to his wife. And all of that stuff, he pointed to Adam and Eve as the literal model for marriage. He called Daniel a prophet during the Olivet Discourse. And as we read, he named Jonah as the model for his death and resurrection. Not an accident that Jesus specifically authenticated those three books and spoke of them in a literal sense. So knowing that Jonah is literal and a historical account, let's dive into the first chapter. Jonah chapter 1 verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God speaks to Jonah, perhaps audibly or in his mind or through a vision, but in some way that is absolutely crystal clear. Jonah's a prophet of God, which means God has chosen him to be one of his messengers on the earth. This is 800 years before Jesus came to the earth in the incarnation, which meant that at this time the Holy Spirit did not reside inside every believer, so it was not yet possible for every believer to hear from God directly. So genuine prophets were a big deal. They were either respected or hated, depending on whether or not you loved hearing from the Lord. 
And the assignment that God gives Jonah is to go to this great city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which dominated the world at that time. Nineveh lay on the eastern side of the Tigris River, which is in modern-day Iraq, where the city of Mosul is today. It was one of, if not the greatest cities of antiquity. It had 1,200 towers, each 200 feet high. It had an outer wall and an inner wall. The inner wall was 100 feet high and wide enough to drive three chariots side by side. You might recall from our study of Daniel, that's not quite as good as the wall in Babylon, but it's still up there. The base of the inner walls were made of polished stones that were 50 feet wide. The walls were 60 miles in circumference, and there was enough farmland within the walls of the city to grow enough corn to feed its 600,000 people, which would have made this the New York City of its day. The palaces covered over 100 acres, and their roofs were made of cypress and cedar with silver and gold hardware. The gates of the city were guarded by lions, real lions and wolves. That's impressive. Hanging gardens were all over the cities, as were libraries and arsenals and other lavish architectural structures, and all of it was built by the labor of foreign slaves. The closest we have to this in our world I was thinking about is probably Dubai, but even that falls way, way, way short. The Lord sent Jonah to Nineveh because while it was an awesome city, it was an awful society. To this day, the Assyrians are known as the most cruel and sadistic people the world has ever seen, surpassing even the Nazis. The walls of the palaces in Nineveh were adorned with portraits and carvings of their soldiers torturing those they had captured. You can see them in the British Museum to this day in ways that I can't fully get into in church, but included pulling out the tongues of their victims, burning people alive, impaling them to die slowly, blinding people, chopping off their hands, feet, ears, and noses, abusing children and carrying anyone left alive off into slavery, often marching them back to Nineveh on a line with fish hooks in their mouths. The tops of the walls of the city would regularly be adorned with the skins of those who had been skinned alive that word might spread across the world as to what the Assyrians did to anyone who resisted them. Cities and towns would be burned to the ground and even the trees in the area would be chopped down, leaving nothing alive. It's recorded that often cities and towns would simply surrender and raise the white flag upon even hearing a rumor that the Assyrians may be coming in their direction. They were cruel, they were wicked, they were sadistic. And so Jonah wakes up one day and gets this message from the Lord. Arise and go to Nineveh. What would you do? What would you do? This would be like being a famous Jew in World War II and having God say, arise and go to Berlin. Tell them God is not pleased with what they're doing. Yeah, I'll get right on that, Lord. Slowly backs away and runs in the opposite direction. Now, what strikes me about the character of God is this. God is disturbed by the rampant wickedness of the people of Nineveh. So what does he do? He sends them a messenger. He sends them a messenger. Why? In the hopes that they will change God looks down on Nineveh and says, I am a righteous and holy and perfect God, so I have to deal with sin. 
I have to do justice to sin. And right now, you're objects of my wrath, but I would rather you become objects of my mercy and grace. So I'm going to send you a messenger in the hopes that you will accept my invitation to move from the place of wrath to the place of grace. Why does God do this? Because that's who he is. That's just who he is. And it's what he's done for every single one of us in this room. We were all objects of his wrath because of our sins, so he sent the messenger, Jesus, his son, to invite us to move from the place of wrath to the place of grace. Would you write this down? God wants to see every person move from being under his wrath to under his grace. Every person, that's what he desires for them. In the Apostle Peter's second epistle, he answered the question of why Jesus hasn't come back to the earth yet by writing this, it's on your outlines. He said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. In other words, he's not brushing off the importance of the second coming as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. That means patient. And then underline this, why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason God didn't just vaporize the Ninevites, the reason God sent them Jonah as a messenger is the same reason Jesus has not returned to the earth yet. The Lord wants to see people repent. He wants to see them change and move from the place of wrath into the place of his grace. Now I want you to notice two buts. B-U-T-S, you degenerates. Not you, the people listening online. Sorry, obviously. Verse 3, it says, but, that's but number one, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. History and archaeology tell us that Tarshish was most likely the British Isles. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Underline the word from, from the presence of the Lord. Have you ever been there where the the Lord has just made his will crystal clear and yet you run in the opposite direction? You completely ignore what God has said. You're not confused about what God has said. You just really, really, really don't want to do it. And here's what you can bank on. When God calls you to go somewhere, Satan will always provide an alternative destination. He'll always have a ship that's right about to sail in the opposite direction which is exactly where Jonah is headed. Write this down. When the Lord calls you to obey him in something difficult, Satan will always provide an alternative. When the Lord Lord calls you to obey him in something difficult, Satan will always provide an alternative. Lord, I'm going to be committed to you. I'm not even going to date a non-believer. I am going to wait for a good Christian girl, because I know that's your will and your word for me. Walk around the next corner, and suddenly there's a gorgeous woman who's interested in you and is not a Christian. Suddenly you're thinking, listen, Lord, it is easier for a non-believer to come to salvation than for an ugly girl to become a good-looking girl. (laughs) And so, Lord, (laughs) I'm just asking you to do the lesser miracle here. So work with me here. Satan will always provide an alternative. 
when God calls you to obey him in an area that is difficult. In Jonah's case, the issue wasn't actually fear. The issue was pride. You see, Jonah knew, and we'll find out later on in our study in a few weeks, Jonah knew what God was up to. He knew that God was out to show mercy to the Ninevites, and he couldn't stand that idea. God, the Ninevites are, they're just the worst. They don't deserve a second chance. They don't deserve your mercy. Implying what? That he and others did deserve the mercy of God? That's why I say Jonah's issue was pride, which is usually our issue too, right? Ap apologize to her, but it's her fault. She doesn't deserve that kind of grace. Implying what? That, that you do deserve that kind of grace? Serve him, but he's ungrateful. He doesn't realize how much I do for him. He's taking advantage of my kindness. Impl implying what? That you don't take advantage of the kindness of the Lord on a daily basis? It's not hard to be like Jonah, hearing clearly from the Lord and then choosing to take off in the complete opposite direction because we think the Lord's kindness is misguided. Write this down. When we lose sight of what the Lord has done for us, we become easily embittered towards others when they receive his undeserved kindness. Really take this in. When we lose sight of what the Lord has done for us, when we're not going to the table of communion and being overwhelmed by the goodness of God and the grace of God toward us, when we're not doing that on a regular basis, it's very easy to become bitter when we see the Lord showing undeserved kindness to other people. Why are you blessing them financially, Lord? They don't deserve it. No, they don't. Just like you don't. Now here comes that second but, verse 4, underline this. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. See, the problem with running from the Lord, ignoring his instructions, is that the Lord is a perfect father, which means that if you're one of his kids, he has to step in and do something when you rebel against him. Because all his ways are good. That means all his instructions and commands are good, which means we're only ever choosing that which is bad for ourselves when we disobey him. God doesn't step in and bring discipline on those who are not his kids. But Jonah's one of his kids, and so the father has to step in, and he does. Suddenly, the ship that Jonah is on is caught in a storm sent by God, a storm so bad the ship is about to break up. In our lives, this is usually the point where we freak out and begin violently questioning the goodness of God, demanding that he explain to us why he's letting the storm buffet our lives. And when we finally shut up and stop blaming God, we inevitably have that moment where the Holy Spirit says to us, have you considered the possibility that the storm may have something to do with that area of your life where you're in unrepentant, complete rebellion against God? and have been for a while? Have you considered that possibility? And naturally we respond, no, that's not it. But it is. Not all storms in life are the result of sin, but that sure is a good place to start looking. And if there is intentional, ongoing rebellion against God in a specific area of your life, and you know what it is, and your life is caught in a storm, you would be a fool not to begin by looking at that and repenting of it 
because that's almost definitely what it is. That should be obvious, but we, and I include myself in this, we have an astonishing ability to deceive ourselves when it comes to sin. We are masters of deceiving ourselves. We don't need to be deceived by the deceiver. We'll do that to ourselves. I find Galatians 6-7 to be one of the most terrifying verses in all of the Bible. It says this on your outlines. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. In other words, there's no scenario in which Jonah, a child of God, gets on a boat and sails away from the will of God without God stepping in and bringing his discipline into the situation. Just like there is no scenario in which you or I rebel against the Lord on an ongoing basis in a specific area of our lives and get away with it. There's no scenario in which that is the outcome. He's a perfect father who loves us and therefore he must do what is best for us and allowing us to get away with sin, knowing that it will affect our eternity detrimentally, that it will harm our eternity, would not be the best thing for us. There are not many things more painful to witness as a pastor than the Christian who refuses to see the link between their storm and their sin. It pains me. If you know that's you right now, do not deceive yourselves. I'm begging you, repent. Do not deceive yourself. Verse 5, then the mariners, the sailors, were afraid, you think? And every man, underline every man, cried out to his God. You see, every man has a God. And you find out what it is when the storm is raging. Even the atheist who appeals to his own intellect for comfort in a time of difficulty is revealing his God to be himself. But make no mistake, every man has a God. Then we read, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. The cargo was the entire reason for the trip. If they pulled into port without it, they wouldn't get paid, they would fall into debt, the business's reputation may be ruined, but guess what, when you're staring death in the face, suddenly, Money and career success become surprisingly low priorities. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. When we rebel against the Lord, he brings his discipline into our lives and we're caught in a storm. And if we won't repent, we've all seen this in the lives of people we've known, we inevitably fall into some sort of despair, some sort of depression as our spiritual life and our relationship with the Lord begins to suffer, our joy and our spiritual energy start to disappear because we've disconnected ourselves from the source, the Lord. That's where Jonah is. He's in this place of spiritual apathy, sleeping in the storm, not wanting to deal with the reality of his sin and the situation it's caused. Verse six, so the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, sleeper? What are you doing? How can you sleep at a time like this? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. These panicked sailors are trying everything they can think of. They're praying to every God they know. They're checking their horoscopes. They're pulling out the magic eight ball. By the way, this tells us about the supernatural nature of this storm. 
These are seasoned sailors who've sailed this route many times before, and they all recognize this is not a normal storm taking place. They know something else, something supernatural is going on. So finally they decide the cause of the storm must be some cursed person who was on board. And therefore the best way to figure out who it is is by casting lots, apparently. Then we read, so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You can almost, almost hear Jonah dropping his head as he realizes how stupid he was to try and run from the Lord when he says, the God who made the sea. You see, Jonah confesses, but he doesn't yet repent. He confesses, and that's the first step. Confession is acknowledging what you've done, how you've sinned. Write this down. Confession is taking responsibility for your sin and the damage it has caused. It's taking responsibility for your sin and the damage it has caused. But sometimes there's a gap between confession and repentance because they're not the same thing. Confession is saying, I did it, I'm responsible, it was my choice, I know that all this damage that has happened is the result of my choice to sin, that's confession. Repentance is changing your mind, changing direction, and saying, so now I'm going to go in a different direction, the direction the Lord has called me to go. It's possible to confess and not repent. There are two different things. He confesses he's halfway there. You know you've sinned. You know the Lord is stepping into your life and bringing discipline, but you're not yet ready to turn away from your sin because you're thinking, maybe I can ride this thing out. That's where Jonah's at. He's at the point where he would literally, though, rather die than even give up his sin. That's one of the things that sin does to us. It convinces us that we can't live without it. It's where I get all my joy where I get all my self-esteem, all my meaning. I can't live without that, God. So write that down. Sin convinces us that we can't live without it. But the Lord is gracious. He knows we're being deceived. So in loving discipline, He works to free us from the deceiving power of sin. But here's what you need to know. The Lord will do that by any means necessary. Any means necessary. Write this down. The Lord will do whatever it takes to free us from the deceiving power of sin. He'll do whatever it takes. You're wondering, how far is God going to go with this in my life? How far does he need to go? That's the only question. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he has told them. This is the appropriate response from the other men on the ship after Jonah tells them, Yeah, guys, the thing is, you know... I'm trying to run away from God, and God is the one causing the storm, so that's what's going on. We're up against God. No wonder they're alarmed. This, this is how deceptive sin can be. It can blind you to such a degree that non-believers have to point out to you, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be rebelling against the Lord. This is a really, really bad idea. Are you not seeing the storm? Are you not understanding what's happening around you right now? Can you not see this? That's where Jonah's at. 
Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that, and then underline this, this great tempest is because of me. This great tempest is because of me. Write this down. One of Satan's favorite lies is this. Your sin will only affect you. One of Satan's favorite lies. Your sin will only affect you. It's just you and the computer. No one else is going to know. That's just something you're doing on your own just to take care of something you need to take care of. It's not going to affect anyone else, only you. And you know why that lie works so well for Satan? Because we're so eager to believe it. We want to believe it so much. And so it's worked ever since the Garden of Eden. Our sin always, always affects others. Sin creates a schism, a division, a barrier between us and the Lord. We can no longer hear from Him clearly. It, it chokes the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It clouds our judgment and reasoning because it cuts us off from the wisdom of the Lord. Our sin always, always affects others. It stops us from dealing with sin in our marriages and families and churches because deep down we know we're in sin and so we feel hypocritical if we address any kind of other sin so we turn a blind eye and the standard gets lowered in our marriage and our family and our churches. It stops us from having the heart of God so we stop looking for opportunities to share Jesus and to be Jesus to others. Our sin always always affects others. And I want to say this especially strongly to the men. God has called you to be the leader of your family. You are spiritually responsible for your household. There's no such thing as a secret sin. There is no such thing as a secret sin. The Lord has put you in a position of influence in your family so that everything you do, your spiritual walk, has a trickle-down effect on your family. So I want you to understand this, man. It's not because you say, oh, I'm going to activate that trickle-down effect on my family and my kids. It is happening. Whether you're intentional about it or not, whether you want it to happen or not, it is happening by the way God has designed a family and the influence that God has given you as a husband and a father. You have it. It is happening. It is trickling down one way or another, for better or for worse. Do not forget Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That applies to your marriage. It applies to your children. Am I trying to scare you? Absolutely. Absolutely I'm trying to scare you. Sin's not a game. The consequences are real. And we will see it in our marriages and in our children. We will see the consequences of our actions. Our secret sins will show up. So don't play around. Don't mess around. There's no such thing as a secret sin. Our sin always affects others. Again, we see that Jonah would rather die. He'd rather drown in the ocean than turn to the Lord, repent of his sin, and start obeying God. We think that sounds ridiculous, but we see this 
all the time in the lives of others and in our own lives sometimes too. This is a person who claims to be a believer, claims to be a follower of Jesus, yet continues to cling to that specific sin. And when they're confronted about it, they simply say, no, I'm not giving that up. I'm, I'm not doing that. I love Jesus, but no, no, I'm, I'm not getting out of that relationship. It doesn't matter if you show them what the Bible says. They just they say, no, no, I'm not doing it. It's because the power of sin has become strong enough in their lives to convince them that they could not live without that sin. There would be no point in going on, no point in living. And you can point out the damage it's doing to them and to everyone around them, but they still don't care. They'd rather die than give that up because they believe they would die if they gave it up. And when it becomes obvious that the Lord is dealing with our sin, how do we respond most of the time? Not by saying, thank you for your grace, Lord, for bringing this to my attention. We say, here's God, probably to kill me and ruin my life. <laughs> Jonah is throwing his own pity party. He says, throw me into the ocean. Because you know what? Once I'm dead, then maybe God will finally be happy. Verse 13 Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. These guys don't feel right yet about throwing Jonah overboard, but you know what? Give it five minutes. So they try to make a run for land, but there's, it's no use. They're out of options. Very quickly, verse 14, therefore they cried out to the Lord. The original language makes it clear that while they were each crying out to their own gods earlier, they're now praying to Yahweh specifically, the God of Jonah, the true and living God, and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased to you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Can you imagine how eerie that must have been that they throw Jonah overboard? And as he hits the waves and disappears beneath them, the sea just becomes calm and the wind stops. The waters cease raging. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. These men got saved. This was what we call a come-to-Jesus meeting. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you and I are living in what's called the age of grace. It's, it's the period of time when we can enter into a relationship with Jesus and find forgiveness because of grace. And so to us, in the age of grace, it, it's a foreign concept that someone might become a believer out of fear. But the reality is that fear is a perfectly legitimate reason for becoming a believer. If anyone today had the slightest idea how powerful God really is, how awesome he is, they would do the equivalent of what these men did. Ask the question, what do I need to do to enter into terms of peace with you, almighty God? The Bible says that a fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. This was an appropriate response to coming face to face with the power of God. Fortunately for us, the answer to that question is, believe in and follow my son, Jesus. He has made peace for you. And that is why it is so urgent that those who don't know the Lord come to know him because the age of grace will not last forever. Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's giving time because there is not an indefinite amount of time. 
we can enter into terms of peace with Jesus right now. But the day is coming when that opportunity is going to be over. The revival that will happen in Nineveh later on in this book actually started on the boat. We think the first people got saved in Nineveh. Nope, there was a revival on that boat after that storm. Verse 17, now the Lord had prepared, underlined prepared, a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He hits the water, goes down, and is swallowed by a great fish, most likely something like a whale shark. We'll get into the circumstances of that in more detail next week. The original Hebrew word there is dog, which means fish. So it's highly likely that every children's Bible is wrong, because they always have the classic giant whale, and that's probably completely incorrect. There, there wasn't a whale like that that probably swallowed Jonah. There was no little, you know, three-legged footstool inside the stomach with a candle where Jonah was writing his diary while he was inside the whale. That's, that's not what actually happened. I had to underline the word prepared, prepared, because that tells us a few things. Write this down. Firstly, the Lord was not surprised by Jonah's rebellion. The Lord was not surprised by Jonah's rebellion. There's never a time when you or I sin and the Lord thinks, I can't believe they did that. I did not see that coming, not from them. They're normally so great. Not only did the Lord see it coming, but Jesus died for that sin, specifically. I'm constantly surprised by my own sinfulness. I'm astounded by it, but the Lord is not. Secondly, the fact that he prepared a great fish tells us the Lord had a plan to lead Jonah to repentance. The Lord had a plan to lead Jonah to repentance. He knew that Jonah would rebel against his command. And before the world was even made, the Lord created a set of circumstances that would lead to repentance unfolding in the life of Jonah. In this case, those events were pretty extreme. What's it going to take? Well, you're going to have to basically get thrown overboard in a storm, think you're going to die, be swallowed by a great fish. Then you'll repent. It's only, though, because we often become extremely deceived by sin that the Lord has to use extreme measures to cause us to see the situation clearly. I've shared before that sin is like a ladder that we're not supposed to climb. Because the thing about this ladder of sin is it's absolutely guaranteed that the only way you will get off it is by falling off it. And it's absolutely guaranteed that you will fall off this ladder of sin. And when you do, there's going to be significant pain and damage. And so our Heavenly Father, who only ever does good for us, calls out to us saying, step off the ladder. Step off the ladder as soon as possible so that the damage and pain from the fall will be as little as possible. But often we simply say, no. And we convince ourselves as we climb higher and higher up this ladder that we're getting away with it, that nothing's going to happen. But all that's really happening is that with every day that goes by that we stay on the ladder, with every rung higher we climb this ladder, we're increasing the pain and the damage that's going to occur when we fall off that ladder, inevitably. The fall is coming. The pain and the damage are coming. The only question is, how much is there going to be? And the answer is determined by how quickly we respond to the Lord's call for us to repent. God is always working to free us from our sin. 
The Bible says Jesus is praying for us right now and the Lord has prepared circumstances and people to call us to repentance. If he's calling you, please listen. Please respond. There will be pain and damage, but there will be more of it the longer you stay in your sin. There will be more of it the longer you deceive yourself by saying, I'm getting away with it. You're not. The fallout is only going to be greater. Parents, I want to encourage you especially. I believe this is something that those of us who have young children are going to remember years down the road. This might not be for right now for most of us who are parents, but I want you to tuck this away in your spirit. We, we've shared before on the hope that we can have as parents because Jesus is praying for our children. Jesus is praying for our children. That, that's not a nice sentiment. The word tells us that Jesus ever liveth to make intercession before the Father. He's praying for us and he's praying for our kids. But I want to add to that the hope that we can have as parents in knowing that when our children do sin, when they do get caught up in it and become deceived by it, when they become ensnared by sin and unable to see the situation clearly, before they were even born, the Lord prepared a plan to lead them to repentance. He prepared a plan to lead them to repentance. Just as it says the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. You love your kids, but the Lord loves them infinitely more. And just as there are no lengths that you would not go to for your children, there are no lengths that their heavenly Father would not go to for them. He proved that on the cross. And so when that day comes, when your child is rebelling against the Lord, whether it's a day, a week, a month, a year, or years, just know that the Lord is not surprised and the Lord has prepared a plan and is implementing a plan at that time to bring them back to the place of repentance. And there's no option that he is unwilling to exercise in order to bring them back to him. He will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And that gives me great hope as a parent. If you're involved with a secret sin and you've been telling yourself that it's not affecting anybody else, do you really believe that it's just a coincidence that you're sitting here this evening in a room at a Bible study so that a pastor can tell you there's no such thing as a secret sin and that your sin always affects others? You here now, if that's you, are experiencing the grace and kindness of God calling you to repent, calling you to change so that you don't have to keep living in fear of reaping what you've sown. It's the kindness of God calling you to be free from that sin. There are no limits to how far God will go to bring you back to him. He is not going to stop. You're not going to outlast God. You're not going to outrun his love for you. So if that's you today, stop living through a storm that you don't even need to be in right now. Turn back to the Lord. If there's any area of your life where you know you are not obeying the Lord, here's what I know. I know that area of your life isn't being blessed right now. I know it's not being blessed. I know there's probably tension in that area of your life. And that's not a coincidence. You are not going to fix it. You're not going to patch it up and pretend it never happened and somehow get away with it. Your only hope 
is what happened to Jonah, being thrown into the hands of a merciful God. Confessing where you need to confess and then repenting, actually changing, taking concrete steps to change and walk away from your sin. That's, that's your only hope. Otherwise, you're just holding on to that ladder, deceiving yourself into thinking that you're getting away with it. God is too good of a father to let you or I get away with it. He's too good. And if you talk to anybody who's been following the Lord for a few decades in our church, they can tell you stories and they can testify that what I'm telling you, what the Lord is telling us through the book of Jonah is true. It's true. Our sin will always find us out. And God wants us to live free from that, completely free from that. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you love us enough to have the hard conversations with us through your word. Thank you that you love us enough to not just give us a little pep talk, but yet leave us ensnared in sin that can destroy our lives and ruin our marriages and families and churches and relationships. Thank you that you're willing to bring up the difficult subjects. And Jesus, every single one of us in this room knows what it is to be deceived by sin. We all know what it is to buy into the lie that our sin only affects us. And we all know what it is to buy into the lie that we can have a secret sin. And if we're honest, we all know that those things are lies. We've experienced it not working out. And so I just pray in the name of Jesus, for any of us, myself included, that may be under deception right now, falling for the same tricks, believing the same lies because we want to. In the name of Jesus, would you just give us clarity? Would you open the eyes of our heart? Lord, would you make it absolutely clear that we are being deceived? Not so that we would simply know, but that we might repent and experience the, the cleansing of our conscience and the freedom from guilt and shame that comes from being forgiven by you, Jesus. I pray that no one in this room would walk out of here in a storm that they don't need to be in. Would you bring freedom, Lord? Would you bring courage to confront sin and to confess where that needs to happen? May we respond to what your spirit is saying, Jesus instead of running in the opposite direction. Thank you that we can't outrun your love for us. We can't outlast your love for us. Your love is greater, it's stronger, it's mightier. Your love will never fail, Jesus. Thank you that that's just who you are. Just be, be still before the Lord. Allow him to speak to you. If he needs to shine a light on an area of your life, let him do that. Don't avoid it. Let him speak to you. Make sure you take communion in this coming time of worship. Make sure you think about what the Lord has done for you, the undeserved kindness and grace He's lavished upon you. And if there's anything that's a barrier between you and the Lord this evening, deal with it, confront it, repent of it, that you might walk and live in freedom. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. 
Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.